We know there's an urgent need to tackle climate change. That's why, at Shell, our ambition means change. We are bringing the Gucci Changemakers initiative to life. At SodaStream, we can save a family up to 3,000 disposable bottles every year. Now that's a revolution. Do you think the palace would support BLM, the principle? Well, well I, I, the answer is easily yes. But people that want to tear down the system, I didn't have any time for. They say patience is a virtue But I can wait as long as you do for a change Call me insane but that's my aim Hello and welcome to Untelevised, the podcast, the podcast that focuses on possibilities for social change. And we do that by looking at how the world is currently, what we might want to change about it and what part we might all play in getting to that change. You've joined us on episode four of season three, the season focused on climate justice. My name is Fiseo and I have a co-host. Her name is Mona. <laughs> Hi, Mona. Happy belated New Year and happy belated Christmas or holiday season. How are you in this new year? Yeah, um, I've, oh God. Um, and 2021 just didn't happen, really, did it? It just felt like it was just this little flash that kind of followed. It was like 2022.0 or something. Like, I don't know what happened there, um, but it's now... 2022 um which is crazy but um yeah I'm I'm good I mean as much as I've just said the year didn't happen a hell of a lot happened in it (laughs) somehow so um appreciating having had a brief bit of stillness um little bit of rest um and um yeah just I guess hopeful for another year to potentially change the world. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like New Year is always um, like a slightly hopeful time. It's when everyone makes their resolutions and when everyone sort of reflects on what they want to do and what they want to achieve. So it it always has a special energy to it, doesn't it? Um, So, yeah. We're going to capitalise on that energy. Exactly. If if nothing else, just for a few weeks until everyone realises it's all doom and gloom again. But yeah, we're going to (laughs) try. Yeah, I feel like our episodes require some energy, really important discussions, but they definitely require energy <laughs> to to um, participate in. But you know what? I mean, speaking of that, I feel like we couldn't almost have much more energy than we have in this one. And it's mm. definitely the like busiest. Well, you know, we've got four people with us yeah. this time. That is <laughs> such an honor. Like it's a crowded space this time. Yeah, lots of guests. And like you say, super, super exciting and inspiring guests. So excited to get into it. But let's stop talking about this in so in such um, vague terms. Let's actually let people know what this week's about. What is it about, Mona? Yeah, so this one, I think we almost ourselves found the hardest to capture into one word or something, didn't we? But we're looking at um, having already explored um, climate change within capitalism in our in, in, in this season, then having looked at sort of the role of philanthropy and the charity sector and how we might fund this change, given that we are still in a time of capitalism where funding matters. We are now sort of looking at 
what happens when radical causes um, or maybe what we might have considered fringe movements in the past kind of become more mainstream, as certainly has happened with climate change in even just the last few years alone, probably. And we've just, you know, not long after COP26 has taken place. So what happens when these topics kind of go into the mainstream? What does that mean? And also sort of how all the different social justice kind of causes and groups almost interlink um, and where climate sits within that. So it's definitely not a small topic. Um, but yeah, we're going to be defining some of the terms that I'm trying not to use yet before we've <laughs> defined them. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting and exciting one with so many different moving parts, like Mona said. So so we don't have to be so weird and vague about things. Let's jump into our learn section and actually give you the terms officially. <laughs> okay, learn. Now the term that Mona was trying not to use but defined quite well there is recuperation. And like you say, recuperation is the process by which radical ideas are culturally appropriated essentially or absorbed by mainstream culture. And it's generally seen as something negative because it often involves diluting concepts and making them digestible um, so that they're desirable by um, the masses, right? Yeah, basically, yes. So, um, you know, we, we see this, um, like, you know, I, in fact, the, the, the one that keeps coming to me is that a few years ago, I was walking through Greenwich, um, past this fancy new, like, bi modern building, and it said something like, join the property revolution. And literally, you couldn't get more sort of contradictory there. You know, revolution is a term that's meant to be like anti-establishment and raw and actually about maybe removing concepts like property and money. And suddenly this kind of real estate company has used this word to galvanize people and bring them into kind of, you know, selling real estate. So it's kind of like taking these words that originally have a different meaning and yes, making them mainstream and by therefore by default kind of altering their meaning really. Yeah, yeah. And I think as well as terms, it's also movements, isn't it? And for me, the one that always comes to mind, as well as the climate movement, which we're exploring today is the Black Lives Matter movement, or rather the movement for racial justice, because it definitely started in a radical place. But increasingly, it's become almost a buzzword, which has little meaning attached to it. So we now have places like the palace saying we uh, the Queen supports Black Lives Matter. What does that actually mean, you know? Um, what does supporting Black Lives Matter mean? And that's not a criticism of the movement and the founders of the movement or the people doing really important work under the movement, but more so a criticism of the fact that people take these terms and dilute them so much, almost as a, a tactic to um, attack, I guess, th this radical change. Um, and it almost just becomes a way to virtue signal to show that you're quote unquote good rather than actually any tangible actions because if the palace truly supported racial justice things would look very different yeah <laughs> and so um our guests today definitely go into this a lot you know like where is that bridge and is it always bad that our causes should become mainstream because isn't that maybe also our hope eventually but how do you go mainstream without dilution you know what does success look like in that way um 
And I guess maybe actually by then a contrast, um, another word that we do hear quite a bit today that is is kind of fits within that is queerness, um, which actually one of our guests specifically says is a kind of moving concept because queerness specifically refers to kind of people or a culture that is like fringe, you know, that is different to the mainstream that specifically refers to people that consider themselves like not, you know, not fitting with what is considered typical in society, be that, you know, ideas of gender or sexuality that society has normalized, like heterosexuality or, you know, binary ideas of gender, for example. So, one, you know, we have guests from an organization called Permaqueer, and so they, they use queerness in that way. Yeah, I think that queerness is actually a word that's been reappropriated more recently, isn't it? Because I'm increasingly hearing it used and used in a positive way. Whereas I think um, definitely when I was younger, it had more of a negative connotation to it. It was almost seen as a slur um, towards the uh, homosexual community. But yeah, like you say, it's such a broader term than that. Um, and it's not just used to define sexuality, but literally existing outside of mainstream binaries of our identities. Um, so yeah, really, really interesting concept that we go into a lot more uh, with our guests. And then another term that um, probably help, you know, is useful for us to describe, because again, it really is referenced a lot by, um, by some of our guests, is the term permaculture. Um, and permaculture is a, it's almost like a lifestyle, a, a belief system. You know, it's, it's a kind of almost like methodology of how you work with the land. The word comes from combining permanent and agriculture and the idea is that you work with land in a way that is a much more um, sustainable essentially that's where the permanence comes from you know work with the land in a way that doesn't destroy it that doesn't deplete its resources that is constantly kind of looking at what is nature's natural patterns and behaviors so like a very tangible example might be if you want to build something, you want to build maybe like a hut for people to live in, but there is a massive tree in the way. You don't cut down that tree to make space for your hut. You kind of build your hut around the tree. I mean, maybe the tree even ends up like operating as like the one of the columns or something in the space that you're building. So you're working with nature um, and actually like learning from it, like as people, we learn from the design principles that already exist within nature. Um, and um, permaculture has three ethics um, that it is guided by, which are people care. So actually does consider people as part of nature and part of the world we live in, and they also need care. But then also earth care, so obviously care for the earth, and then fair share, which is this idea of kind of fair and equal distribution of, again, the world's resources, um, of its wealth and of its assets. So you will hear more about permaculture later, but it's clearly it's one of the methodologies that a lot of people feel is how we should live if we do want to work towards climate justice, if we actually don't want to keep destroying the planet, basically. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because listening to you there, it makes so much sense to me. And actually, it's probably how a lot of people traditionally might have lived. And actually, a lot of people around the world still live. But um, now that we've become so involved in capitalism, it's become almost the opposite of how we live. We've become so removed from 
um, working with our environments and seem to feel that we should control them. So definitely um, another exciting concept to explore this episode. But um, as usual, um, you're not here to just hear from us. Um, and we've brought people in um, this time from as far afield as Australia and then right back down here to London. So, yeah, let's um, let's dig in. So this week I'm speaking to the formidable Toad and Guy from an organisation called Permaqueer. Now, before I introduce them, I must put the caveat here that they live on the other side of the world from us. So they got up to conduct this interview at 6am their time. No one can question their dedication to the cause. (laughs) Now, Permaqueer is a platform for ecological education that aims to build community resilience in alignment with environmental resilience and has a special focus on queer and BIPOC communities. Guy and Toad established Permaqueer in March 2020. As COVID hit globally, they realised how much resilience they had in their permaculture transition home in comparison to their friends and peers who were living in contemporary living arrangements and were suffering. It revealed to them the power of being embedded in food networks and systems based in community bartering, economy and social welfare. Permaqueer started as online introductions to permaculture for friends and it spread amongst the queer community like wildfire. Now, they offer free and pay-as-you-feel courses that teach ecological foundations, permaculture, social justice, decolonisation, trauma and neurodivergent informed systems based on building community resilience globally, including several TEDx collaborations. Their community education unpacks systems of consumerism, white supremacy and colonial binaries and aims to restructure communal systems of resilience. They hope to eventually manifest these systems into co-housing villages, food systems, cultural capacity training and regenerative restoration programmes. So, (laughs) let me catch my breath. Hopefully, after all of that, you're as excited to hear from them as I was to speak to them. And I promise you, you won't be disappointed. We historically had a much lower income than a lot of our friends, but when the lockdown hit, we had constant access to food and an abundance of food enough to share with our community whereas a lot of our friends were suddenly had no income no housing security no food security a lot of them had to go back home to New Zealand and we kind of saw oh when we talk about food security and permaculture this is what it looks like pragmatically things start to fall apart a little bit and we were really secure whereas a lot of our friends weren't so I think that's really what jump started us to kind of start it (laughs) I think you know, for us, Permaqueer was about um, listening to marginal voices, listening mm. to minority voices, listening to the the people who the system was never built for. And frankly, we know that this climate crisis is a result of systems that are propped up by cultures that are mm. dominant. And we don't want to prioritize those voices anymore. We don't want to prioritize those systems. We don't want to feed back into them. And so for us social justice and climate justice is centering those first nation voices it's centering those voices of color it's centering those marginal 
queer communities that have discovered alternative ways, well, not even discovered, maybe they knew the whole time um, of how we should live in reciprocity and have continued to do that against all odds and, and systemic violence, I suppose. And so for us, it's very much about, you know, going against that dominant narrative, being incredibly loud, proud, colourful and passionate about being in that space and also holding space for others that look like that within Permaqueer. So we sort of aim to have a network of uplifting all of the weird, wonderful, queer and alternative voices that don't necessarily get um, the, the headspace and more airtime. And just to, I'm just going to, you pretty much summed it pretty perfectly. Hey, um, the one thing that's really important is it's not just a series of uh, kind of tech or recycling that we need to kind of implement. It, it's a culture change. And it's not as simple as just trying to, you know, in, include one or two habits. It's, it's a real cultural shift that we need to engage in. And that it's big and it's scary. And how can we make this a point of excitement and pleasure and joy? rather than kind of climate or environmental shame or, or punitive kind of uh, punishment around it. How can we get transformative and juicy and exciting with that? Yeah, uh, I, love, I love what you've just said there. And I definitely want to come back to that. Um, so have a think of what you might answer to your own question in, in oh, a no. little bit. <laughs> um, but I, I also love what you said there about culture change. Um, and I'm hoping you can help me out with, uh, with questions I've got around that because this intentional focus on marginalized identities, I think is, is really important. And it really resonates with me um, as a black woman who's living in the UK. I really, I, I can appreciate what it feels like to be marginalized and effectively um, experience it every day in my lived experience. But um, I've also watched quite keenly over the last couple of years as there's been a lot of focus or a lot of talk about dismantling systems, identifying um, the wrongs in the systems. And whilst, I would be in support objectively of many of the messages that have been posted and spoken about. Um, I can't say that I've been particularly inspired or impressed by the actual actions <laughs> or the outputs mm. or the processes that, <laughs> that have actually come from these things. Um, and I mean, you've won a prize for your approach and you won in the intentional category, which is means it's like at the early stage in the idea stage. Um, so that's even more impressive in a way. Uh, so I'm not going to ask you why you think this approach is important because I think you've explained it quite well then. And I'm hoping that everyone who's said that they've been learning over the last couple of years actually has, so they don't, they no longer need to ask why these spaces are needed. But I do want to ask you how, and specifically how they can be created authentically. I feel like most people had this experience as a kid. You looked around and saw things that like weren't right or weren't okay, but like, everyone just did them and the world was just like, this is how we are. And I think, you know, because these questions have come up and because these, you know, undeniable truths have, ha we, we know that, you know, climate change, racial justice, indigenous sovereignty, these are all things that we need and we have just systemic barriers coming in. And so for us, we've really had uh, a, a very gentle approach. And this is whenever we come into, you know, spaces or workshops or environments, um, as opposed to, you know, trying to create a safe space, we ask to have a brave space. We ask 
ask people to acknowledge the realities that exist within the room, the, you know, stolen country that we're here on in so-called Australia, uh, the power dynamics that exist between even us as facilitators or teachers and the people that come along to learn, uh, the, the racial dynamics that exist in a, you know, white supremacist colony essentially and speaking explicitly to these things and it's you know it's difficult we deal with fragility all the time but you know this is how we get through these things you know we can't create these amazing fantastic new systems until everyone's acknowledging the elephant in the room everyone's aware of the elephant in the room and everyone is capable of responding to it and not just reacting to it Mm -hmm. uh, and one thing that I kind of want to hop in here is that um, being in a lot of very leftist and very queer spaces, we want to make sure that we're not using the language of liberation to enact the same systems and patterns of violence. So from a permaculture perspective, what is actually the pattern and behavior of, of colonialism or patriarchy or these kind of things? Uh, in a lot of the spaces we've been in, we've seen uh, the example I always use was uh, in Nam or so-called Melbourne. I knew a lot of cis white gays who used the language of feminism, a very academic feminism, to silence the critiques of women towards them for their misogyny. Um, and I, I see this in a lot of different spaces. It's that same pattern of, of violence, but being wrapped up in very kind of progressive language. So what does it actually move, mean to move outside of that? Um, my favorite quote of all time is, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. So actually, if you forego those, what are the tools and, and language and patterns we need to instill instead? We need to move away from kind of extractive, uh, competitive kind of things. We need to move towards collaboration. If we move towards collaboration, how the hell do we do that? In a very complex intersectional space, how do we be in right relationship and kind of supporting and uplifting each other in a way that doesn't tear each other down? I feel like you have access to my questions and you're like posing them to me before I have a because that is literally, literally like almost word for word what I wanted to ask you next. Oh I'm literally going to speak about the idea that despite really agreeing with what you're doing and like having the lived experience, which um, helps me to understand why these spaces are needed, why this approach is needed. I always struggle. And this is why I was really keen to speak to you with sort of the bigger picture, because I acknowledge that we sort of need to have these subcategories and these, these spaces. But I also always struggle. And Mona and I'm the co-host of this podcast, always speak about the idea that Ultimately, if we're going to dismantle systems, everyone needs to sort of be on board and mm. um, there are actually things that unite most of us more than divide most of us. Um, <laughs> and it's very hard because your lived experience affects your experience of the world so much that obviously you want to fix that first. But how do we fix that while simultaneously fixing the bigger things? Um, mm. and, and almost is some of these fights around identity almost providing distractions from um some of the bigger fights and how we navigate that space and it's something I struggle with a lot um and some I don't even know if I've asked a question there but it's something I sort of I wanted you, to pose to you yeah <laughs> no you framed something really beautiful for me to to speak about um permaculture the reason that one of the reasons I really love permaculture is that um when you start to uh, learn it, you can start to see the complexity of nature, the systems in place and the interdependence that's constantly there. 
uh, where I think that the permaculture movement sometimes falls short is it sees outside in the garden, the, in, in the forest, it's beautiful, complex relations that are entirely bioregional uh, and individual and diverse. But when we turn to groups of people, we do the black white thing. And actually like there is that inherent complexity and interdependence and, and relation. And at every different place, that's gonna be different. Um, the reason that I actually connect queerness and permaculture is because for me, it's, it's personal, it's cultural, it's community, it's even bioregional sometimes. Uh, my experience as someone who's trans non-binary is going to be incredibly different to someone who might even be white AMAB in a, a different continent. Like it's not the same beast. Uh, and I think having language to explore that is great, but moving from a way of competition to collaboration like an environment, we each have our like my deep wells is kind of um, uh, uh, queerness and unpacking white supremacy. Those are fields I'm really invested in, but I can work alongside someone who's really deep as wells are feminism and this and this and this. It's like, how can we be like the best species in our environment, the best keystone species in our environment to work towards a goal and understand that the forest itself is working towards a common goal in many different ways that we can't even imagine. Mm. That, I might have answered that well. I might have answered that in a very abstract way. <laughs> Can I add to that? I, yeah. I, I think as well, you know, the importance of understanding ecological function mm -hmm. is crucial to, to getting along because you understand, wow, you know, trees and animals, yes, you know, there's a food chain, but they actually all collaborate for the well-being of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And until you understand that core relationship and where we fit within this ecosystem, like you said, um, Faso, it's just going to be sort of identity politics that distract us and confuse us and actually pit us against each other. And so this is why we, we put it through an ecological lens, because it's like, hey, you know, yes, we're all weird and wonderful creatures and that's fabulous but we all exist in the same ecosystem we all have a responsibility to each other and we're all interconnected and 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 that's the part that we were missing we were missing that that recognition of us all being in the same place and i believe that comes because of the constant patterns of violence and segregation that come from these colonial white supremacist xyz mm -hmm. systems that we live underneath mm. Um, yeah, you've both put that really beautifully and expressed it better than I could and actually thank you because it's it's something I've been grappling with for a while and trying to understand and I think actually what you've said is really powerful and I want to continue along that vein a little bit with my next question um, and looking at how we take these theories that you talk about and enter them into, I guess, a more popular space, something that can be um, adopted um, on more of a mass scale, I guess. Mm. Um, I recently found a word that articulates my reservations quite well called recuperation. And I think that we see this in a lot of the spaces that you're operating and a lot of the theories you're operating mm. within. Um, whenever these theories are discussed in maybe mainstream culture, Take climate justice, for example, um, we know that many of the solutions for tackling the adverse effects exist within Indigenous cultures, like you've said, yeah. um, and lifestyles. Um, at, but often these are either routinely dismissed and ignored, for example, even in um, where you, the place that you are. We know yeah. when you were having the bushfires that there were Indigenous communities literally saying, we have the solutions, we know why this is happening, and they were ignored. Mm. Um, mm. And even when these things are observed, 
it's often for commercial reasons and then they're co-opted mm. and changed and you know mm. um again like movements like black lives matter in the uk i'm not sure how it is where you are it's literally come to mean almost nothing because everyone the queen supports black lives matter apparently i mean yeah. the biggest mm. symbol of you know colonial mm. like, it's just like what, yeah. what does this even mean anymore you know yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. so my question i guess is uh my first question <laughs> i guess is <laughs> how can we learn from one another without it becoming this do you have any ideas mm -hmm. around how because obviously i guess the idea would be that more and more people adopt these things but how do we how do we do this learning without just making it pretty instagram squares and like simple, yeah. do you know what i mean commercializing it and all of these things yeah yeah i think you know um to put it through permaculture lens the first principle that comes up to me is um, you know, use slow and steady solutions. And, you know, the, as Tobe was saying earlier, it's a culture shift we need, like to put this into an indigenous framework for a moment, you know, we look at things from a seventh generation horizon. So we're not looking at, you know, next week, we're not looking at next year, we're looking at seven generations beyond us. What are our children's 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 children, X, Y, Z, what is good for them? And so this is why, this is the culture that we have this like, okay, what is our hard, fast solution? How do we get it to scale? How do we, and, and that's where we're going wrong. We're thinking that by diluting it and dispersing it as fast as possible, we somehow achieve the quality that we have stripped from it in the process of doing that. And so for us, we have a huge focus on our community, on, uh, regional, you know, bioregional community, contextual community. And so this is where the queerness comes in because queerness for us is inherently different everywhere. It looks, it smells, it tastes, it behaves. It is inherently different. And so this is why we, you know, challenge the binaries of gender, challenge the, the binaries that exist around us because they act to homogenize, to disperse information and understanding as quick as you can. But it looks so incredibly different context to context, ecosystem to ecosystem. You think of someone's backyard garden, you know, everyone could say that they might have a, a garden, but you, that doesn't mean they're the same garden. It doesn't mean they have the same plants. It doesn't mean they have the same animals. And so until we recognize that it's the way we're framing these and it's the way we're we're, we're deciding the solution is this hard, fast, quick mass scale thing, that's when we've lost it. And so, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't mean that we can get this mass scale out there as fast as possible. But like you said, what we're seeing, it gets out there, it means nothing. It doesn't do anything anymore. It becomes a fad. It co-ops the, and, and in a lot of ways, it sort of degrades the, the people and the movement that started it in the first place. And so clearly we need a, a different approach. And, and, and for us, that's the, the slower, relational contextual communal local approach hmm. um, maybe just to throw one thing in there as well um i think as well sometimes you need to name the the beast about colonialism and um, um from a permaculture perspective what are its patterns and behaviors and and the largest one is homogenization um it seeks to homogenize everything into an easily consumable mass um and what does it move to move in opposition towards that? It's to acknowledge the complexity and the diversity. Um, we're really intentionally don't speak for other people. 
even who people who might be like the carbon copy identity version of us because the lived experience is different it, it's it cannot be kind of translated perfectly so we can give ballpark sometimes but we'll never be able to speak for another group of people um, and, and making particular intention to kind of speak for that as well to be like hey like we are us over here in our little corner in our little bubble this is what we're doing how you have to do it for yourself is we can't we can teach you some themes but it's up to you to reframe it and restructure it according to your context i really really love that and actually um it's, it excites me what you're talking about um, and it actually makes me question even more why we've chosen to live the way we do because how exciting is what you've proposed there you know the idea mm -hmm. that we can all there's so much variety in life and variety in what we mm. can be and how we can live and homogeneity compared to that sounds extremely boring so it's it's very <laughs> it's yeah. very interesting that that's what we've chosen to do and i think on that note um toad hopefully you've had enough time to consider <laughs> the joy element because i think what you've said actually sounds like joy to me um everyone being free to freedom and existing as who you are um and finding spaces where people can come together in joy I know this is a really hard question, but what might that look like? How might we get there? How might we approach that? Hmm. I think for the first and foremost, it's, it's, we have to be trauma-informed in our practices. Um, a lot of people are, are reaching out out of a place of scarcity, of burnout, of harm, of trauma. And they, like what you said about feeling like uh, movement become co-opted and then kind of replicate those over-cultural patterns, um, we reach towards what's familiar to us. So for reaching out of a place of scarcity and burnout and trauma, as, as most of us are, we're going to replicate what feels comfortable and safe to us. So actually a lot of what we do is how do we create systems of abundance and collaboration? What are the skills and patterns we need to be able to even do that? Um, one thing that like I'm really invested in is um, unpacking white supremacy for white people because the language that we use a lot of the time is um, and I learned this from Madeline Taylor, um, is the comparisons between overindulgence models in children and white supremacy, interestingly enough, um, and how that can manifest in children, and I would say white people as well, um, is not knowing how much is too much, poor boundaries, sense of entitlement, uh, difficulty giving and receiving feedback, so fragility. Um, and there's one or two things in there as well. So if, we, if I use that model, a lot of the times people who have a lot of systemic privilege and power who want to collaborate or share resources functionally don't know how to or have the learned helplessness to actually do that. So that's part of the transformative work over here. That's something we do over here and we do it in other spaces as well with different kinds of people. Um, and so it, it has to be positive motivated. So when we work with those people, for example, it has to be like, hey, dismantling white supremacy benefits you. Uh, you've kind of been kneecapped <laughs> Uh, in the ways of collaboration, in the way, the lot of ways that um, patriarchy might kneecap men's um, capacity to show to show emotion and things like that. Um, how can we actually model this in a way that's positive? That's that's one area over here. And do you want to speak to it? Yeah. And I think around you know around the the culture of that and bringing that joy. Like you can't pluck 
like a culture of white supremacy from someone and not replace it with something. They're just going to go straight back to the only patterns they know, the only traumas they know. And so for us, this is where this very unique intercultural framework comes in. How do we start replacing these, you know, problematic conventions with ones that bring joy, with ones that ask, how are you? How are you feeling? And allow you a space to connect to that you know, your divine senses and recognize, oh, I'm valued here, not just for my productivity, not just for, you know, the the labor that I can do and not just for the person or money that I have accrued or X, Y, Z. And so until we sort of learn to be comfortable in that space of creating new cultural conventions or, you know, reclaiming old cultural conventions and understanding what is a healthy cultural convention, um, we can't really step into that um, place of joy in a way that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we see a lot as people don't quite understand um, the, the patterns of, of colonization and white supremacy and don't actually trade them out for other things. And one thing I'll, I definitely want to bunny hop off what you said there of um, we see in a lot of kind of like anti movements or decolonizing movements, it's like, hey, don't do the bad thing. But if you're a group of people that have only ever stolen to feed yourselves, the choice by saying don't do that is steal or starve. That's actually not a choice that people can make long term. So how can we actually replace that with good culture, with collaborative culture, with, with, with something good? Nature abhors a vacuum. And if you pull out one weed and don't plant something else, another weed will pop up. I don't have anything else to add to that after that. I don't know if we answered the question. Yeah. Not the question. <laughs> no, no. Um, I think one of the things that I pulled out, uh, I was jotting down as you were speaking, is the idea of patience and trying to move beyond the initial emotion that I think a lot of people feel, which is anger. And not that anger is not justified, especially when mm. there's pain attached to your experiences, but it's almost necessary to move beyond it if we're going to actually restructure things without mm. purely shifting them if that makes any sense so it's not about oh mm. I'm I happen to be at the bottom of the systems and I just want to elevate myself at the expense of maybe someone else or whatever it's about actually how do we have patience with each other to like you say do this in a way that can be sustained um quickly before I ask my last couple of questions I just want to ask how have you <laughs> I'm a bit of a fangirl now of you both. How have you become so wise? Where did this come from? You're both fairly young based on what I can see through my camera. You seem to have such deep knowledge. Is it something you've sort of had passed down to you? Is it just learning that you've done personally? I mean, how did you even come to be living so differently to begin with? Um, I'd just be really interested to know that background. Um, I, I want to say that I think there's... Uh, in a lot of ways, I fall under technical marginality, but I'm incredibly privileged. So I got to experience a lot of the life experiences of something, but I was systemically supported by by systems as well as people. So I got to kind of do the trial by fire, but it didn't end up with me being incarcerated or anything else like that, still being financially secure. Like, there's a lot of privilege involved in there, mm. for me anyways. Mm. Um, and I suppose, you know, I actually grew up um, in, so I have uh, Pākehā, which is white, um, Whakapapa, which is lineage. Uh, my mum's white 
and she's an amazing social worker who when I was in school was you know harping on to all the other parents about transformative justice and race work and all this and you know we didn't know you know we, we were just like ah oh, what the you know what does mum even do I don't know <laughs> um, and then from my um, father's side uh, because of what happened through colonization it wasn't a safe environment for us to be in there and so I grew up in very very white systems but was always like this is like there's something that's not right like about this and then you know when I came to you know permaculture and started learning about systems thinking and you know really got to know my my cultural heritage I was like oh okay let's apply a systems thinking lens to it and I think you know the reason we've been able to I mean you called it wisdom I, I would say it's like systems thinking um <laughs> but the reason we've been able to uh, uh, point acutely at these these things is because we've really taken a, a patterns lens to this how how do these ecological functions emerge and, and why do they emerge and i and this is the value of understanding ecology and these patterns and frameworks because it, it puts a completely non-colonial completely non um you know capitalist view on things and and that's a a, a a lens or a set of goggles that's very difficult to explain if if you don't know what people are talking about much the same as first nations lenses um or or you know other people's perspectives and so yeah i think it all it all started cultivating when we when we moved into that permaculture transition house yeah way back when mm. and i think one thing that was really um kind of uh, transformative for me was I threw myself into kind of queer nah, Melbourne uh, and it's a very academic space. It's very academic feminism, very anti, um, academic anti-racism work and, and queer spaces. And I found a lot of it was being used to bully each other. It wasn't being used to actually move towards liberation. It was used to once again, enact the same patterns. Um, the language I used for a really long time um, was it, it felt like it was all in the head, but none of this work was in the, the heart or the hands. Uh, and I was really, I, when I came to permaculture, I was like, oh, this is a way we can put it in the heart and the hands, move it out of the head in the academic and into the body. What does it look like to embody this? And oh, look, I, I have all these feelings. How do I move into a place of joy and, and, and safety in this? And realizing, oh, that's some of the work. And I'm, we're, well, I don't say I, we're both surrounded by some really profoundly beautiful people who've been uh, elders in our community and supported us like we're we're youngins yeah. to be I, honest <laughs> i'd say it would be a mess if we were talking about how we got here if we didn't mention all of the amazing mm. women who literally brought us to the space literally in, paid the tickets for us to go to workshops um paid for our pdcs and um, our investment yeah. that you know it it it's been such a beautiful um culture and community of support here mm. um literally entirely by women in, yeah. in the Australian permaculture context, which is, you know, unbelievably amazing to be in community with, with these incredible wahine. Yeah. You just said, how do we take it from the head and bring it to the heart and the hands? And I just think that's beautiful. And luckily we're, um, we're not wishing to exist within <laughs> capitalist systems where we commercialize everything because I think that would make an excellent t-shirt <laughs> that you can sell <laughs> around the world. <laughs> um, yeah. But 
one thing we always try and do is to leave our audiences with practical, tangible things that they can do. Because I think, like you say, a lot of this can feel like it's existing in the head. Um, and we've got very deep, especially for so early in the morning um, on your <laughs> side. Um, and I hope people feel energized and I hope people feel empowered listening to this. But it's also likely that some people may feel overwhelmed and think, OK, I, I want to sort of reach that place. But where do I even start in my own in my own space? And acknowledging sort of that there are micro changes that we can all do. And then there's the macro changes that we're aspiring to. Um, so if people are listening, what would you say is like a starting point or an action that they can take that will have an impact? And I know you, we've spoken a lot today about the fact that this is a process. Things happen slowly and all of these things. But yeah, what, what are some things or some tips or even ways people can contribute to what you're doing? Ooh. Um, I'd say that the, the first thing um, is so contextual so it's very hard to to give actionable steps to people but I would say try and take a look at where your food comes from like you become your food you are you know that that's how in one way we connect to our landscape and we connect to the soil and understanding where that comes from and why it's important where that comes from is a, a very powerful place for a lot of people so I would yeah, I would say take a look at where it comes from and, and try and get invested in where it comes from because that's one of the, the biggest issues that we have, a separation of, of people uh, and, and their food supply and, and then proxy, you know, the, the, the ground that we live on. What is it? It's, it's think global, act local. Um, <laughs> what does that actually mean pragmatically to, to grow food or to support someone who does grow food? Uh, to do that kind of work and, and connect with someone. Um, hmm, I think one of the reasons I find permaculture really great is because, you know, it, people have described it as revolution disguised as a gardening, but like you can't really liberate yourself from all these systems of power and violence if you, if you rely upon it for it to feed you. Um, if you rely upon systems of extraction and overseas pretty much slave labor for your food, like how do we move towards actually being able to liberate ourselves for those food systems? Like when you can secure your own food, first and foremost, then you can start to work on other systems a lot easier, I'll say. Uh, and this is in collaboration. I, I want to say another thing around um, like identity hmm. to, to come into this um, intercultural framework that we need to come into, to relate to other people and to create a third, fourth, fifth, version of you know what we currently exist within which is what we need to do frankly that's the brief and to get there we have to have the um interpersonal skills to do that and that requires you know not only knowing your identity here and now and the choices you make but also understanding your cultural tale and where you come from and who you are and i think mm. this is you know this is out there to everyone but also quite pertinently to um, a lot of white spaces and white people that don't believe there is anything behind whiteness because that assumption and that lack of engagement is, is stopping the acknowledgement of so much nuanced stuff that actually is the reason so many things happen. And so, you know, 
everyone benefits from understanding their cultural tale, but you can't come into a space of cultural emergence unless you know the baggage you're bringing into that space. And we all need to unpack that baggage every single day so that we can come and create this, you know, new, beautiful, joyful, um, generative and queer future. Sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, it, it's uh, my slight pause is because I've got 101 more things I want to ask, but I've already been told off by my co-host because I'm always the one that has the long interviews. <laughs> we have to end up editing for ages. So I'm going to limit myself and it's fine. We're, I've got your WhatsApp now, so I'll be, <laughs> I'll be covering yeah. you all the time. Yeah, yeah, perfect. please do, please do. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to end on a question that I think I can predict the answer to, but I'm going to post to you anyway. And that is, when will your work no longer be needed, if at all? We ask, we try and ask all of our guests this question. And um, yeah, it often stumps them a little bit. <laughs> I want to say soon. That's what I want to say soon, but I don't think it's going to be soon. Ideally, um, you know, Permaqueer for us, we are figuring out how to make it a network. So how do we, you know, like mycelium, the mushroom network, how do we spread ourselves in a way that doesn't destroy that integrity like we were talking about before, which is such a wicked conundrum for us. But I believe if we're able to do that effectively um, and, and we can try and continue contributing what this environment for cultural emergence and you know reparations reclamations and recreations um i feel like when that happens it'll happen real quick i'm not sure why like i feel if people are like oh damn like that's just way better like let's do that and then everyone will just be like Ooh. at least that's my hope that's my hope um but we will continue i will personally continue doing this work until that happens yeah I think, and I'm a little bit on the other way, because for me, queerness is, it's contextual, and it's always edge, edgeful and, and, and marginal as well. Like it's, that's what kind of queer is. And it's a shifting thing that can't be pinned down. You know, the minute it becomes one group of people and then those people uh, get kind of lifted in some way, then queerness shifts. It's, it's a really misty thing. Um, so for me, queerness is always, and permaqueer is always going to be a shifting thing. Like we've, um, garnered so much kind of visibility and support, which is great because we fall under this, uh, we are marginalized in some way, but we're also deeply privileged in other ways. So I feel like as we move, like as pioneer species, we're, we get to be weeds that, that, you know, like dandelions that break up kind of clay soil and, and make way for other people. So I feel like in the future, like the face of permaculture will, uh, permaqueer will probably change and permaculture as it like, as we continually kind of move around. And I think, Guy and I's best function as, as dandelions or weeds is to continually be in spaces that would be a bit, bit, are a bit clay bound, I'll say, and a bit trickier and harder for other folks to maybe navigate. And we want to like break up that soil and, and create space for other folks. And we're always, it's always gonna be a dance of shifting and moving and working out where we're supposed to be. Because if we're in one spot for too long, you know, we, we're taking up space. So how do we kind of move around? So this week, 
I spoke with two incredible campaigners, activists, researchers, facilitators, just all around energizing people um, from something called the London Leap Network. London Leap um, is a network that gathers grassroots organizations and campaigns from across London to ensure that actual frontline grassroots work and experience and insight is fed in to policy development for London so that you're actually understanding those lived experiences and ensuring that they reach people within the Greater London Authority or you know the mayor of London's team when they're actually looking at how to sort of improve climate justice or social justice for Londoners. Um, this network is coordinated and facilitated by Kennedy and Laurie, who I'm speaking with today, who both have extensive experience across kind of social justice movements, in particular where it intersects with race and queer liberation. So just was a no-brainer to um, speak with them today. What we're trying to do, which is ultimately about like changing to a system a way of, of sharing, a way of being in relationship with each other and the resources that we need to sustain ourselves. Like that, that's about everybody. That's about anybody. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who are directly affected by, by these systems that we're trying to change that can be very often alienated by the words that we use. Um, and at the same time, we do need to like use these terms so that we're clear on what we mean. And especially when we're trying to, I guess, influence spaces where decisions are being made, like you know, a local council or government or anything else, really. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't specifically feel very precious about a term or a word. Like sometimes it makes sense to talk about climate justice. Sometimes it makes sense to talk about social justice. Like when, when we are at the core of the work and start with the experience of that we're trying to like, you know, communicate on or act upon, the terminology, yeah, almost is secondary in a way. Um, and I feel like it's really important to remember that this work starts with a reality or an experience that some of us are having, some people in society are having maybe an injustice that one or several people can no longer bear to experience or to witness and wanting to do something about that. And that is like an incredibly natural thing for anybody to want to do. Um, and I think it's been a thing for as long as humans have been trying to exist with each other. Uh, and it's important to remember the stability of that ultimately and to let that, you know, inform what words we want to use and then get strategic about, okay, if, if this is about ultimately like air pollution that is being experienced in this specific part of the city, what are the places where decisions can be made to impact that? And what is the language we need to use to be able to be in conversation with the people we need to influence on this? Both the people who are experiencing it, who need to shape that reality for the better and the people who have the power and resources to eventually do something about it. We are in a time right now where it does feel a little bit like the whole world is suddenly focused on this issue, or a lot of the world anyway. Um, and, you know, as people who've been working on this and campaigning on this for a very, very long time, do you see this as a sign of, of progress? Is it a sign of success when we suddenly have like world leaders taking the stage to discuss it and the whole world is on it and companies and brands and sponsors and all of this? Like, does it show that we're making it and that the issue is being taken seriously or does it actually die does it dilute um the cause mm. like you know is it the mm. right voices are, 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 are sort of more voices always better 
um, mm. by default or not? Like, do you know, does it risk kind of like distracting us from the severity of the issue? Like, how do you guys see that? Yeah, so that's a big question with mm -hmm. lots of different dimensions and I love it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there's three ways that organizations cause change, generally speaking, and these aren't, you know, separate always. There's kind of this idea of building alternatives. So thinking about what alternative systems are, there's challenging dominant institutions. So like challenging like the government policy change and things like that. And then there's personal empowerment, so cultivating leadership in our movements. And so I think to cause change, we really do need all three of these things within movements um, to affect change for the long term, for us to have sustainable movements. Those three pieces of a pie need to be working together and in communication and in community with each other. Um, and so, yeah, with something like COP, you'll have lots of people being like, don't worry about co-op. That's, that's not where the movement is. Like we're out here building co-ops and land movements and we're building alternatives. Um, and then people, you know, that are like really in the lobbying, really in those institutions might be like, you're just building alternatives. That's really like, that's only for a small amount of people. We need mass change for lots of people. And what, and then what, but what ultimately we need is both of those things for the change that we need to see at the scale we need to see it. And so, what I'm interested in is look thinking about those relationships and how they interact with each other and how they can be strategic with each other. Um, in terms of that piece that you named around, you know, people looking at COP and 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 um, using it as an opportunity. Because um, another way of looking at COP is 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 as as someone that is kind of positioned outside of those institutions and want, wants to influence, I suppose, is looking at that as COP as an opportunity, like or a moment of whirlwind in the media to kind of use it as an opportunity to introduce new narratives, introduce new stories, to really influence what is being said and use it as a springboard to bring attention to issues that traditionally haven't been talked about or marginalized. Um, and then from that to kind of that newfound energy, how are we strategically taking that energy and putting it into long-term practice? So taking it from a mobilizing space, which is traditionally about mobilizing messaging, big slogans, things like that, like protest, mobilizing big, large numbers of people, and then how are we moving that into an organizing space, which is much more intentional, long-term relationship building, power building, strategizing. And I think one thing we have to learn when you when we are part of this work is that even when we witness, you know, like corporations and governments uh, co-opting some of the work and some of the language that has been like built over many years, there's there's also a balance to find between finding strategic ways to challenge that, uh, which is what Kennedy was talking about, and also learning to let go at times and understanding that we can't have an influence or some sort of control over every single thing that is connected to the struggle that we're a part of. Um, and that means we just look at where we're positioned, what, the, what do we have access to in the landscape that we're part of, and take it from there. Um, that's, that's just a way to be gentle with ourselves so that the work in itself can be sustainable too. That, that's a really interesting point, Lori. I, I remember the first time it really hit me how much language was being cropped. It was like years ago, but I was walking through like Greenwich and there was these, you know, fancy new flats and it said something a bit like join the housing revolution. And I remember it was the first time that I went, okay, the fanciest, most expensive flats. And like, I literally can't believe that revolution is the word that now gets used here. And then you get into sort of what do we do? Like, does that literally just like 
change the whole meaning of that word and then what words are we left with right but at some point mm-hmm. they're words and then I guess we have to keep using them too and they mean what they mean when we use them um yeah go on Kennedy all right you know that makes me think about like if if a word like revolution or community power or something any phrase that kind of is like a signal to radical change mm-hmm. is so easily co-opted by something like um you know a um an organization that builds like um, luxury housing that you know is obviously in opposition to that stuff if 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 that can organization like that a cooperation like that can eat so easily cop language what was the movement supporting that language mm-hmm. is what it makes me think about if it's so easily co-opted um so it makes me admit that's what it made me think about yeah and, and if i blame all of these different people who have vested interest in keeping the system as it is they may be able to co-opt languages but they can't co-opt movements which is uh, I guess, like, why it's so important to be part of this long-term work of building these alternatives, because when when you see and witness that, that, that can't be, that can't be co-opted, essentially. Um, and, and I guess we just have to be at peace with that, that there will always be <laughs> actors um, who have these vested interests in, yeah, in co-opting the language and making sure that within the spaces we have to communicate mm we do what we need to do and amplify the truths we need to amplify and to trust that those who are meant to receive that will receive it. Mm, it is a danger that we need to be aware of in lots, in lots of ways though, given what, what I just said, in the sense that, you know, uh, you'll have corporations, like you, a ma- big movement moment will happen, like George Floyd, lots of people talking about Black Lives Matter, corporations kind of jumping on the bandwagon of talking about like, you know, having lots of black lives, like rhetoric and language in their comms around that moment, while also having really, really shitty and bad working conditions for their workers. And that is like a dynamic that is used to kind of get like to get around being held accountable for that stuff. So it's, it's, it's a complicated issue, but it's to say that we, we as a movement needs to be more strategic and I uh, don't use the word but smarter around the idea of how in what ways do we ensure that our movements and what we ask for are deeper than just slogans mm-hmm. um, yeah exactly yeah 100% I feel like you're both kind of saying if the, the work is good enough it speaks for itself right or like we cannot just keep hiding behind language at some point the work is being done and then that's what will be seen right and the packaging can then be whatever almost but you know essentially it's about what goes deeper than that and and I know we've all spoken separate you know at, at, at times about the frustrations of course that we we feel when you know um on one hand yes the whole world suddenly you know pays attention and that could be seen as a good thing and you don't want to dismiss that and you don't want to sort of um you know you do want to try and galvanize that but at the same time you do sit there in frustration going but we've been doing this for so long and suddenly you know you're interested in this for 10 minutes and then you're going to go off again and I don't really know what to do with that and how to hold that in that time so I guess that does kind of bring me on to you know um how do we then like 
authentically kind of make our radical causes appealing to the majority, right? Because I mean, if you really want something to be taken seriously and changed, you don't want to stay on the fringes, right? And there can be maybe a danger of romanticizing marginalization or romanticizing struggle and never wanting anyone to come and join in it with you or to, you know, to make it mainstream somehow. So, but that's the aim, right? Is that the ideas we have exist in the mainstream if you want any kind of social change. And we, Actually, you know, we spoke with Lush, the cosmetics company on this series as well. And um, one of the things even they said was that we kind of used to be the slightly radical kids on the block, almost like the slightly more, you know, alternative company. And we brought in naked packaging and all these things. And suddenly other companies were doing it too. And even we felt a bit like, oh, but that's our thing. And then you almost get into it being like, but is it branding? Like, is it meant to be your, do you want it to really change? Or do you want to be pioneers and do you want to be special and so on but anyway so mm. if not cop 26 or you know if the answer isn't just these mass world summits um but nonetheless we want like the majority of the world to come on board with these beliefs then how do we do it if not through companies and slogans and corporations making ideas mainstream through narrative and language and messaging can happen. So, or, or it can be in in mainstream consciousness. So, the things that make that I think about are like um, the Occupy movement and we are the ninety nine percent. Like that became very like mainstream slogan. I think about Build Back Better, which I think originally came from like lefty spaces and then was like taken by the Tories um, after in the post pandemic um, kind of building back. A better world after the pandemic. Um, so, so making ideas mainstream happens relatively often. So, like, like in bursts of like narrative and moments of the whirlwind in media, like ideas become mainstream quite often. The 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 tricky thing is, I think, is making them stick um, and meaningful, and that process is a longer process of trust building face and power building, listening and responding. And again, I think that's when you are, like you're using different tools at different moments. The mobilizing tool of like getting messaging out there, mobilizing many, many people for a protest, taking advantage of things like COP um, or um, the, the, the murder of George Floyd, like taking advantage of those moments to get messaging out there, but then also already having the infrastructure required and the people and resources required to, trans to translate that into long-term trust building, power building, listening and responding. Um, it makes me think about pace. And like those two things have different paces and energies and intentions. If, if one is about shouting slogans and polarizing people and mobilizing people and really like activating people, the other is about long-term kind of education for change, understanding where people are at, working with them, understanding that they've having a capacity for empathy to then move them. And I think that is a completely different approach. It makes me like, if we take the macro into a very, very, very like specific example of like, you're at dinner with your uncle who's like racist or homophobic. And if you're in the mobilizing energy, your intention and purpose might be to shout slogans at him, which is just gonna make him shut down and probably be more homo homophobic and racist. But if you're thinking about it in a longer term and your intention for transformation, right? So it's not just about informing, but transforming. Your intention is then to understand that person, to move them along with you. 
Now, who does that? Who has the capacity and privilege to do that? Who wants to do it? That's all different questions, but we need both of those things if we want our ideas to become mainstream. Um, yeah, that's what it provoked for me as you were speaking. Yeah, I really believe in the power of stories, you know, when wanting to make ideas um, that might seem radical, actually appealing and seem like just uh, natural to people who might have been shut off to them if it was packed in a slogan or in a campaign. Um, and that, I guess, is part of the long term work as well. Um, storytelling art is a big part of how we can change people's sense of what is possible, because I mean, you, you asked, like, how do we make this appealing to the majority? I feel like we've we've all been like fed narratives um, around like scarcity and about like how things need to be or about like the fact that things can't be any different. And a big part of shifting that in the long term is is actually telling stories um, of both the people who are, I guess, feeling the impact of this system the most so that we can start reconnecting and retapping into this sense of like compassion and empathy and like wanting things to change as well as having the sense of like what can be possible and what ex what 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 is the realm of possibility um you know and and that's that's art that's science fiction that's like <laughs> loads of different things um and and trusting that people do have hearts and feelings and that that is that is material you know that we can use to to move um big 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 amounts of people in the direction that that hopefully is is yeah transformative and revolutionary yeah we've seen that happening yeah something that i would add to add to that as well is i mean i suppose i assume that people in the in our movements assume that the things that we're working on do affect the majority of people and so moving with that assumption i think we need to be doing the work to make sure that the issues that we're talking about and the way that we're talking about them are applicable to the majority of people's lives and and that's a lot that's actually a lot of work that london league does um in a lot of our work we even though we might be classes within the environmental movement we work with people like from the housing movement from kind of a refugee rights movement from the school to prison pipeline in the uk like we work with people from a broad range of um, issue areas, because it's the understanding that a lot of these issues are connected um, and it's and the importance of making sure that it resonates with people's day to day experience. You know, like if you most people in this country, I would say, have a very deep interest and care about housing. And if you're a parent, for example, you, and you live in shoddy housing, you're going to start caring about colder winters and hotter summers. Um, and so and if you know, thinking about really people's lived experience of homelessness right so like people being out in the elements that is a real thing that is close to people's lives and so really just doing the work in our spaces which can be quite insular and can be quite like self-congratulatory and um having the tools to be able to step out of those boxes, step out and doing lots of collaborative work with the people that um that are going to be that face the brunt of the systems that we are trying to change. Um, and in doing so, building those stories in community to be able to communicate those to a wider audience. A lot of the work that we do in London Leap is we, we're building systems with the intention of like promoting them so they can be replicated in other areas. So although our work is often hyper-local, it's the idea that, yeah, the ideas and solutions that we come up with based on our, on our authentic um, lived experience within community can be replicated in other spaces as well. Um, and the idea that it's the idea that the ideas that we come up with and systems that we come up with, yeah, are, are, are off the back of the solutions we're coming up with, 
being applicable to the majority of people that we work with. And so the hope would be in communicating with them, they would appeal to a broad range of people. No, completely. And for, for anyone listening, actually, you know, we, um, for context, like, you know, we, we have an episode on uprisings, which speaks about the importance of these key moments in history that although it's not just about that moment, and it's not just about the slogans, you need those pivots and you need those catalysts because people cannot remain mobilized and excited all the time um so you need them but then they it's about what follows them and equally um some of the touch stuff that's been touched upon just now like we, you know in our allyship episode there's a lot of conversations around how people might support movements and come into movements that are not necessarily their own lived experience and so on so i think there's a lot there that's spoken about that we're gonna link to um Kenny, that takes me really, um, that really takes me into kind of the next thing I actually wanted to speak to you guys about. So, you know, um, we spoke there about different people's more individual experiences, and then nonetheless, the kind of more universal human experience, right? Like, you know, the, the majority, the mainstream, and then these kind of, again, like subgroups of people. And, you know, you mentioned homophobia, you mentioned racism, you mentioned, you know, refugees, homeless people, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like in this, um, particularly in the, organizing that we've also been doing together in recent months, you know, um, leading up to the climate reparations march, um, the way, this, you know, the speeches that were made, a lot of the, the, the language, let's say again, that's been used, has been about trying to take it a little bit out of just this mass blanket statement of climate change or climate justice, and then getting a little bit into kind of like, okay, but for people of color or for women or for refugees, and what does it look like in all these forms? Um, I guess where so where again where is you know what's the what's the ideal kind of intersection there between a universal battle um something that we're saying affects pretty much everybody that we would like everybody to come along with um and then splitting it into so much narrative around subgroups um is it needed or do we just all need to kind of bulldoze at it together in unison whoever people are um you know there's terms come out like eco-feminist and whatever and suddenly people are massively sub-categorizing themselves all the time as opposed to it being a sort of human experience and an emergency that's facing all of us so yeah where do you guys feel again how do we balance that and how do we not risk that that maybe fragments us and you know splits our movement and prevents us from kind of reaching our goals i believe to be unified in this fight and to be able to respect and honor our shared humanity, which is what this, this, this fight is ultimately about, right? We need to be able to look at our differences, not as things that threaten our ability to come together or to be in solidarity with one another or to feel compassion for each other, but as something that needs to inform how we go about doing that. Um, and the, the need to name certain groups has emerged forever within social movements because there has been specific people within the people, the bigger, the bigger group of people that have been repeatedly erased or silenced within certain spaces or within certain uh, struggles because of the power dynamics that exist in society that we sort of all inherit and that sort of use these differences um, as a pretext to justify some of these power dynamics. So I guess historically, if we, if we think about colonialism for instance it's like taking race racial difference as a pretext to say well these groups of people are actually uh, not as valuable as human beings as these as these other group of people as in like white people um and that's 
like we need to be able to look at this legacy so that we can move to a place of well dismantling that that lie because it is a lie and at the same time like repairing all of the harm it has caused and to be able to do that with inside of our relationships as well as in the longer term fight that we're trying to affect we need to be able to talk openly about difference and about how these systems that we want to change affect us differently um, and and that's why I think it's really important that within uh, last week's climate reparations block, um, there was actually a lot of narratives that that named specifically the experience of different people, not as something to say, well, this is about this group of people and not about this other group of people, but to say, this is what some of us are experiencing and we're, we're all connected. So we all can take responsibility for what is happening there because it connects to, to what is happening somewhere else. Um, and we all have a stake in like actually impacting these dynamics within the spaces that we operate in. Um, and when we are able to name different groups whilst also recognizing what we have in common, uh, which is amongst other things, the right to be safe and the right to live a dignified life, then we can start building strong movements that are generally inclusive rather than, I guess, using the rhetoric of unity to hide and mask power dynamics that do exist uh, and that can be left unaddressed. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, the only thing I would add um, to that is, um, yeah, the idea that solidarity and unity can be incredibly powerful. I think in concepts like political blackness, which was a loved phrase in the 80s in the UK, which basically said that, you know, um, it was used by black and um, people of South Asian descent alike to kind of um, identify as black to kind of um, unify them in their experience of racism in the UK. Um, and now a few decades on in hindsight and at the time as well, there's critique of that as being a very powerful tool and like kind of this kind of really beautiful thing of recognizing how interconnected a lot of our struggles are in a very intimate way, but also a um, collapsing of experience and not recognizing the, the nuances and differences in, in, that, in, that, in those experiences of oppression. Um, and so where I go with this is kind of an idea of in our movements, who are we centering and where are the solutions being sourced from? If you are centering the most marginalized and oppressed in our, in our movements, then the solutions you come up with, it's the idea that if you know the most oppressed and marginalized are liberated, we all will be. Amazing, thank you guys. And yeah, it actually kind of echoes um, our other guests on this episode, um, all the way from Australia, but an organized group called Permaqueer and, and you know, they take a sort of very similar, you know, you maybe start off thinking, oh, you're running this very like, I don't know, bespoke thing for just certain people. And then actually there is this real vision of um, the unified world we want to get to, right? But how we get there and what's being repaired in the meantime until we can get there essentially yeah. um and sorry can I have one more thing no, of course which is like I think one thing that isn't done enough is giving time and weightiness to doing the work to understand how our struggles are connected but the, also that integrated process I know Laurie spoke to that but I do think it's important to to highlight that as like and that process being incredibly important because that pro off the back of that process is how you formulate your strategy, how what solutions you you the, the nuances in the solutions you create and, and you're advocating for. And so um, in every if, if you're working in the social justice space, the resource that you get to understanding how your issue is connected, like if you're a housing, if you're a housing group and you're not thinking about how racism is implicated in that, 
Um, you really should be doing that kind of work to understanding that and adding capacity to that, I think, um, to not only bringing people in, but also having solutions that work for the long term. Um, so it's also strategic in building power and coming up with solutions that will be sustainable for the long term. So I guess um, on solutions, guys, um, for anyone listening um, who might be a bit newer to this topic and to the idea of even kind of organizing, fighting for it, um, and might be feeling a bit overwhelmed by the enormity of it. Uh, and we've spoken about all a lot, even just in this discussion here today. Um, like, what are some tangible steps that people can take to contribute to this movement? Um, maybe initially, like some kind of low hanging fruit, like, you know, what Buddha sort of intro to, to climate justice or just an intro to organizing or, or, or activism or whatever look like, you know, and I know that we're, we're recording from London. So I guess there is some, maybe some more specific London points that there might be, but actually also how might that advice be given, um, you know, considering people might be listening in very different contexts it depends where you become activated and where and so where your journey starts my first project that i worked on was on um trade justice it was a very like international issue um which was great and i learned a lot um and i think there's something to operating within your context as it is so understanding what's going on in your workplaces understanding what's happening in a local community um, is a beautiful place to start. So building relationships with you, like, I mean, obviously a lot of people across the world and the UK will have lots of beautiful relationships with their neighbors, but if you don't start building relationships with your neighbors, understanding the local issues and start working, like start thinking about working on, on them. Um, and I mean, this is kind of biased because of the stuff that we, that we're interested in at London Leap is, you know, what alternative ways of, of doing are there? Um, can you set up a food co-op, for example, locally? Um, and what would that look like to implement that hyper-locally to your area and working with your neighbours? Um, I would say taking your time, taking your time to be imaginative. Um, what, 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 um, what does joy in this work look like for you as well? Because um, it doesn't always have to be doom and gloom. It can be very incredibly joyous. And I thought that's something that, I, that I've held close to me, but I wish someone told me <laughs> to do more of. Um, and so for me, I think be, get curious and start hyper-local in the sites that you're already in your workplace, your local community, build relationships, thinking about things, how, how things can be done differently, um, understanding the experiences of your neighbors um, and um, start building power that way. Um, I would take these big ideas, these big ideas around colonialism and environmental movements and da da da, and like, what does that look like in your day-to-day -day? Um, and start there is, is kind of what I would say, yeah. Yeah, again, totally resonate with what Kennedy said. And um, another thing, if I think about my younger self, when I first started wanting to be active around like, yeah, social within social movements is, you know, when you start caring about that stuff, oftentimes it's because you're really starting to witness um, the, the violence around you in a way that feels more and more unbearable, either because you're experiencing it you're experiencing it yourself or you see people experiencing it around you and it becomes suffocating and it's so easy to get stuck in that place of like despair I guess and like thinking about how things are just too big for us and to to sort of um, carry on with that idea of joy that Kennedy touched on when we find our little spots you know and, and bubbles um, of, of, of action and I guess joyful militancy 
within, within spaces where people are trying to affect change, we can start finding a balance between witnessing the violence that happens, but also really tending to all of these miracles of like how people are able to come together in spaces, heal with each other, build something with each other, and really witnessing like, wow, like if you think about all of the odds, you know, and, and this group of people came together and won that campaign, you know, uh, whether it be about housing, about racism, about like, um, protecting people from migrant or refugee backgrounds from being deported or there's so many different things and 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 to start having that balance actually is really good for our mental health <laughs> and our ability to keep engaging in this work and like seeing seeing the reality of the violence for what it is and keep tending with 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 love i guess to all of the spaces where where there is there is growth there is things that are being nurtured um, there is change that is happening, there is transformation, and that is miraculous, and that is beautiful, and there's a lot to be, gra to be grateful for when, you when we start finding our spots, you know, in this doing, uh, and this community building, and this social change work with each other, and it can, looks like, it can look like so many different things, and ultimately, like, one step at a time, with love and self-compassion every step of the way. Honestly, this thing about joy, I mean, and literally, I mean, Permaquil said the same thing, and we keep hearing it, actually. And um, uh, on a previous episode this season, we also spoke to um, Asa Raymond from War on Want. And, like, there's just people are really echoing that sentiment again and again, which is brilliant, you know. And we, um, I, to me, that, because I do think for people that maybe are not deeply in it yet, they also might just be like, oh, God, it just sounds stressful. And all these people that want social change are just really angry all the time or whatever. And I think really showing, I mean, I think about it in my own life, if nothing else, just some of the most meaningful friendships in my life or whatever, you know, they come from being in these spaces with people you share passions with. And if you're going to try and go out of your way to go to a salsa class or something to meet people you have stuff in common with, you might as well do it over fighting for something meaningful, right? So it's, it, it is a very human experience. And I, it, we are hearing this actually consistently in our interviews um okay so i'm gonna um draw it to a close but by asking you guys something that we ask everyone um who takes part in this podcast um which is and i mean i guess if it's joyful then then maybe ne <laughs> then maybe you'll do it forever but like when if ever do you think your work will no longer be needed a world in which we wouldn't have to exist anymore would be one where our institutions are transformed in a way that really value and center the importance and necessity of working in meaningful collaboration with community and that community and institution of one basically almost one in the same um in a way that i mean the, the question is so big with london leap especially because it's kind of a thing of being like is racism eradicated? Are power dynamics um, thrown out the window? Um, but I suppose there's one thing where the project that we're basically, what we're trying to do is uplift uplift solutions for a just transition that, that, that addresses racism and inequity in, in, the, in our economy on a local and kind of like regional national level. And so once that is done, sure, we can start. But also I think generally more broadly speaking about the work of, for me, I see social justice work and I see kind of, the work of building worlds that are that work with people and that can have beautiful relationships as ongoing and forever. I partly see kind of the idea of a beginning, middle, and end as quite like a 
maybe I, the words that come into my mouth maybe a western construct or like quite a like like I feel like that's something we're taught to believe um in that I grew up being taught to believe but actually I think the work of understanding yourself understanding how your relationship with people and the world and the environment is a very ongoing process and that doesn't have to always be framed as a struggle I'm not married to the struggle um, actually doing this work has freed me up in lots of ways that I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, and so understanding myself, understanding my position in the world, understanding my power, understanding the power that's outside of me um, is a very beautiful process. And I intend to do that. So for as long as I can. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, <laughs> that's what I would say. Yeah, no, that's, that's it, right? Um, I, I really appreciate this distinction between, you know, like a campaign or project, especially if it's like embedded within an institution, like mm. it's the case for London Leap, that needs to have some sort of end date because we don't want to be needed um, in the long term. Um, but but the, the work of just figuring out how to be in respectful, um, dignified, joyful existence with each other. Is, is, is something we'll hopefully be doing until, yeah, until we die. Um, and we don't want it to stop because it's probably one of the most beautiful <laughs> and creative and exciting things to be doing in life is like, okay, how can we, how can we be better at, at caring for each other, at being in relationships with each other in ways that honor our difference and our magic and our truth um, and to do that in relationship to all living things, um, including earth and everything it entails um yeah and that's isn't that a beautiful thing <laughs> that we get to do wow 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 i mean do you know what i think this episode literally answered or not answered but explored so many of the things that constantly go on in my mind mona so i've got a lot to say this share section <laughs> but i'll pass watch it out, people watch out <laughs> But I'll, I'll pass it on to you first. What stood out to you this episode? No, but you're right. I mean, the sort of the wisdom and the kind of like, I don't know, I felt like I was going on a spiritual journey. And <laughs> as you said, there were so many sound bites that just if we were all a bit more capitalist, we'd be printing on T-shirts. Honestly, we'd be selling to fund a, the movement. <laughs> honestly, I genuinely mean it. I've got Guy and Toad's WhatsApp number and I'm going to set up a little side hustle with them <laughs> selling t-shirts because just so many great sound bites and quotes came out of that. <laughs> no, absolutely. And they ended on, you know, th this idea of if we are somewhere for too long, we're taking up space. So how do we move along? But anyway, so yes, um, we're going to take up space for a little bit for now. But um, so many things, I feel like... Um, something they all really referenced and embodied was this idea of, and we've heard it across so many of our episodes, but the joy mm. within activism, like how it's not just an angry thing and how we can start to actually, you know, do it in a way that we enjoy and that grows us as people and that you're not just doing it because you have some, like, exhausting duty to the world but it, it energizes you it feeds you it makes you feel good you want to do it you know um toad speaks about that like we, we don't want don't just want to shift a couple of habits it is a complete 
lifestyle change, mindset change, right? Mental state that has to yeah. change. And that also is the thing that stuck out the most to me. And I know it's becoming a repetitive theme, but especially within this context, because I think it might've been Laurie that said, violence is suffocating and you can't stay stuck in a state of despair or a space of despair. And honestly, that resonated with me so, so, so much because I just feel like, it's really exhausting. I think you just used the word exhausting, actually. <laughs> but it's Sorry. really, really exhausting just existing sometimes when you're someone who's not protected by the system or the system wasn't built for you. Like just going into work or just going X, Y, Z, just doing everyday things can be exhausting, let alone consuming all of the media the literature, all of these things going on social media and seeing all of these acts of violence against people who look like you or identify the same way you do. It can be exhausting and it's almost like existing in a constant state of trauma. So actually reminding yourself that there can be space for joy in this um, is, yeah, it's really important. But also what I found really interesting is how they all acknowledged that maybe the natural reaction to this pain and despair and violence and suffocation is anger and yeah that would be a natural reaction you want to push against these things you want to express your anger that you feel at existing as a human but not being treated as a human um, necessarily by systems but they all spoke about the need to move past that anger um, if we're going to see real change and I think that is a dilemma that I'm constantly facing because naturally I want to be angry at a lot of things and I and sometimes when you sit in anger your reaction is to simply shift the goalposts so try and ensure that you're just not at the bottom of the totem pole rather than dismantling the totem pole in itself um, and I see a lot of people's reactions to things centering in that kind of space where it's more centered for example as a black woman it's more centered on raising the profile of black people rather than um, what the notion should be, which is, I guess, some kind of um, community and equality. Um, so yeah, the the presence of pa patience, I guess, transforming anger into patience <laughs> and conversation and trying to use language that doesn't exclude, for example, or because it's a very hard thing to do. But ultimately, I guess the acknowledgement is that if the goal is sort of I guess, change, justice, equality, all of these things. We have to not just shift where people stand in the system, but completely revolutionise the systems. And in order for that to happen, the people that are identified or the systems that are identified as the oppressors have to be involved too. Um, so yeah, I think I think joy and transforming anger uh, were, were some of the really big things that stuck out for me too. Well, and I guess, you know, we, we sort of frame the episode as sort of, you know, is, you know, um, how, you know, how do we get everybody along without um, diluting things, you know, and equally, how do we get everyone along whilst constantly still referencing people of colour or queer people? Or, you know, how do we sort of highlight the differences while still creating this collective human narrative? And I do feel that they all sort of recognise that, it is definitely the ultimate goal that it's a collective human narrative. I mean, collaboration was mentioned so many times, but one thing they all said is quite a lot of work then needs to also be done on ourselves mm. to get there. So like whether that's healing your own pain, as you mentioned, um, or whether it's about sort of really challenging even your own 
preconceptions, the, the behaviors you yourself exhibit because you've been raised in this competitive individualistic society. So you might want the world to be different, but you don't actually have any templates yourself. So you continue to act in a kind of competitive individualistic way, even yourself, you know, Toad mentioned that, you know, like if you can't just say to people, let's remove white supremacy, what are you putting in its place? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so they, they all had that acknowledgement, the vision, like we're not just removing things. We're not just saying down with this, down with this, down with this. We're actively saying and replace it with this yeah and we've 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 repeatedly seen how important it is to have that notion of what you're replacing it with like you say isn't it because i think often not only does that encourage people to get involved because it's i guess tangible things for them to see but also i think critiques critiques of change often grasp onto an absence of an alternative don't they so yeah like you say the like i said in permaqueer's introduction the organization was born out of the fact that they were living differently already and saw the um, vulnerability of people that weren't living like them, you know? So yeah, exactly. And even something I think as simple as the fact that we spoke to people from London and then we spoke to people from across the other side of the world, but yeah. there was some really shared sentiments there. I think that should also show us how universal this fight is, yeah. you know, how universal this human experience is because, you know, we've never met them before and, you know, we're, you know, with this so many, from so such different places actually experiencing and understanding some really sim similar human processes and human emotions. Um, yeah. And Kennedy, I feel, you know, really recognized, you know, again, we said, okay, so is it, is it in that case good or bad or, you know, if, if, our radical ideas, you know, or alternative ideas when they become mainstream, you know, how is that a problem? How do we approach something like COP26, for example? And this, this acknowledgement, again, as I think we keep coming back to, which is you have to fight this from so many different angles. There is the micro, the macro you fight within the system, outside the system. Um, you know, Kennedy was saying, like, actually... COP, you know, you, you use the momentum that COP gives you, you acknowledge the platform that propels you forward in some ways, you continue to do all the work you've been doing behind the scenes. And Laurie was saying, don't maybe get too attached then to the words that are being used and who's using them. Fine, someone's co-opted your word. That doesn't change the work you're doing, mm. right? The word can become a little bit of a distraction or an obsession like the work is the important bit, not just what what title we put on it. Mm. Yeah, mm. and I think one of the important parts of this, again, to remind ourselves is that it's a journey, isn't it? It's, it's I guess there's no ultimate destination, <laughs> which, um, which can- Sorry, everyone. <laughs> just yeah. It can be discouraging, but again, it can be that thing of joy and the purpose of life and the things that we keep repeating, I feel, um, uh, over the episodes with our guests, isn't it? It's just, yeah, the constant journey to discovering betterness. Yeah, and, um, you know, I really liked, you know, we, we do stump people a bit sometimes when we say to them, you know, when will your work no longer be needed? And I guess the ideal is always that people would go, yeah, one day hopefully it wouldn't be needed because we would have got there. And, you know, Kennedy said, the work on myself, though, I think is, is always needed. Like we're always going to be humans 
in this world trying to do our best and grow and develop and interact with each other. And I guess, again, you know, this episode we've looked a bit at, is it actually divisive if we keep going radical, mainstream, fringe movements, mainstream movements, you know, movements for black people, movements for queer people, etc. Is that divisive or is it just important to recognize all of those elements, nurture them all and then kind of bring them together and I guess we've always said in this podcast it has to be fought on all fronts like it is such a big battle um you know even Assad said you know in the capitalism episode that you can't ignore that COP26 happens right it might feel like it's not the version that you were fighting for but you can't literally just bury your head in the sand and not at least acknowledge its role and what you might do with that platform right when it's there um and i think ruth kind of said in the same episode that i guess the goalposts then just keep changing like radical then gets redefined because if now everybody's doing plastic free then plastic free is not that radical anymore so i guess we have to keep pushing like then you dare to keep pushing the goalposts even further i mean um toad was saying brave brave space as opposed to just safe space you know we kind of dare to be dare to be brave um and push ourselves further all the time yeah but i guess for our listeners <laughs> i always feel slightly bad because i feel like we leave you with such existential massive <laughs> macro um uh, uh <laughs> ideas in this section but actually I think some tangible things now, both people spoke or both groups of people spoke about thinking globally, but acting locally. And they both spoke about it in slightly different ways, didn't they? Um, Permaqueer spoke more about in the way we eat, the food we eat, production of food. And then um, London Leap spoke more about the sense of community and um, local issues, etc. So now I think we can leave you with some pretty tangible micro things now that you can you can do if you've been inspired by this episode and this topic and want to start your journey or continue your journey yeah so i mean um on food specifically and you know obviously we were speaking to the london leap network there is something called the um, community food growers network um, across greater london that you can look up um, cfgn that literally lists all the different food growing projects, permaculture projects, and a lot of cases that exist in the greater London area so that you can literally find what project is local to you that you could get involved with. Um, London Leap is really worth um, checking out um, and you go to platformlondon.org um, because that is literally, again, a network of grassroots organizations within London that are working together and trying to influence policy. Um, Tipping Point, um, Tipping Point UK is another kind of grassroots movement um, that are really like trying to tackle climate change by bringing together grassroots entities. So again, you can continue your local work, but connect to a wider movement. So they are definitely worth um, checking out as well. Um, another media partner on the Lush Spring Prize, which we were involved in, is, is Permaculture Magazine. Um, and so, you know, Permaculture Magazine, Permaculture Association, um, that's where you could learn about permaculture in more kind of depth, which is 
again, a, a design principle that so many of the nominees and winners of the Lush Spring Prize actually like work with. Um, and so again, we would really encourage you to go check out all the organizations that were either nominated or who were awarded under the Lush Spring Prize who we've produced this podcast series with. Yeah, I mean, like I said, both groups spoke about the importance of understanding where things come from both ourselves <laughs> as individuals and the things that we consume and I think it might have been Toad that said you can't separate yourself um, from the systems that are destructive if you require them for things as basic as feeding yourself so yeah I would really encourage people to check out all of those links and if you're not based in London there will be local organizations of a similar vein in the area you are based in so maybe just search food growers network for example or permaqueer garden etc in your local plus your local area name and I'm sure you'll find um, a similar resource but we're trying to link as many as we can in the description. And in terms of maybe that sort of work on self or on even understanding where all these movements intersect and on how you might, you know, support race equality whilst also supporting climate justice, for example, um, there is a lot of, I guess, you know, again, we can't always avoid it. There is a lot of reading and resources yeah. that you can that you can do, you know, that you can check out and that you can absorb to, to kind of go on that journey. And we will link to as much of that as possible. I mean, you know, you might just end up, you know, Permaqueer can start doing sort of like self-discovery like lectures or something that we can distribute to you but um they seem to have swallowed every bit of um like reading material that exists out yeah. there on the on the subject but yeah we will um there is always you know there are things that can be yeah to understand those concepts better I think at, at you know at the root cause um it, you probably can't get away from having to explore a little exactly bit. reading watching listening to um the, to the different resources that are out there. And I would just add quickly onto that is once you have read, have a conversation with someone else because I think that's the important thing as well, isn't it? Having conversations um, on a human level, spreading what we know and also absorbing what other people know um, because I think that's also one of the most important ways that we learn to understand one another. Um, it's just through communicating with one another. That's, a, I guess, the most simple of the <laughs> things we've given you to do this week. And so we're coming up um, soon. This is the penultimate um, episode in this season and this um, sort of specially produced season with the Lush Spring Prize. Um, next episode, next and final episode, we will look at the role of sort of young people in this movement, the way that they have been hailed but maybe also burdened with the responsibility of having to fight for climate justice i mean we had a fairly young group of very very wise guests um this episode um so it's definitely happening younger generation is really stepping up on these issues but is that um to their detriment is is that a burden is it a privilege um and actually we will be hearing from some very young um, activists um, next time around. Um, and until then, you can always find us um, at untelevised underscore TV on all social media um, or at untelevised.co.uk for um, online with all of our resources, um, you know, further reading and previous podcasts that we've done. Yeah. As always, guys, let us know what you think on our social medias or you can email us at talk to untelevised at gmail.com to be in the digit two. And 
You can also follow, subscribe, rate and review us um, wherever you're listening. Please just, yeah, do one of those things because it really helps us to grow and to reach more people um, so that they can also join in the conversations. Uh, but until next time, I guess, uh, where we'll be joined by, yeah, some people that make us feel really, really old. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Call me a dreamer Idealistic believer With my head in a cloud I don't want to come down From my feet Or plant it on Start the ground For my ground My ground is a cloud